right, let's dive into this sermon today. Um, we are. This is not a part of a series, just kind of a, a little one-off thing that I had on my mind I wanted to share. We're going to be looking at, uh, go ahead and put that next slide up, um, this idea of, of what is, uh, you know, the, the kind of methods that we use in order to accomplish our mission as a church. Our mission as a church is glory to God, hope to people. We're going to bring as much glory to God as we possibly can and as much, uh, share as much of the hope that lives in us with, with other people that need it as we possibly can as too. And what happens is though that mission will always be the same, we will occasionally use different methods. The meth, you know, we're married to the mission, but we date the, the methods. We're married to the mission, but we date the methods. And so, so the methods might occasionally change and often need to and have to change. And so what we're going to talk about uh, this, uh, today is this idea that uh, our, uh, you know, this, this age, this era of time, uh, this generation, we are living in a, a weird tension uh, historically in terms of, of church and spirituality and Christianity and that sort of thing. It's a very weird tension that we're living in. It's not... The, uh, this is not the America of, you know, 30 years ago, and it's not going to be, it's not going to remain this way, uh, you know, looking ahead for the next 30 years that we're, we're living in this kind of transitional phase spiritually that I really want to talk about. Um, if you, if you're, if you've been around long enough to remember this, if, if you kind of backtrack about 30 years in your memory, uh, you, you will know that, um, the nation looked a lot, our society in terms of, you know, just the, the way we behave and think and that sort of thing, it looked a lot different, say, 30 plus years ago than it looks today. There was a time when you could assume that kind of uh, philosophically speaking, morally speaking, um, everybody was pretty much on the same page. We all kind of launched off of pretty much the same uh, you know, uh, viewpoint on life. And that, that viewpoint kind of centered around, uh, this book, the Bible. And, and it was, it centered around kind of Judeo Christian ethics. Um, and so, so what happened was we would, you know, so if, if, if you lived, you know, if you were living life 30 plus years ago, um, you know, we kind of felt all pretty much most people felt the same way about, different morality issues, and, um, you know, uh, everybody had a little bit of, or a pretty good, actually, knowledge of the Bible and the stories of the Old Testament and things like that, and, uh, you know, you were, you, you were either raised up in church as a kid, or you went to church with your grandma or something like that, and, and, uh, and so you got that, that foundation that everybody could sort of kind of agree upon, and even if you didn't really agree on it, you kind of kept that to yourself. Right. And nobody was really talking outside of the box or saying, uh, you know, what they really believed about things. Everybody just kind of there was kind of a, 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 a social contract that everybody kind of unspokenly agreed upon. And, you know, we agreed upon a certain set of morals and a certain you know, way of looking at life and that sort of thing. And by and large, most people were kind of on the same page. That's that's not the nation that we live in anymore. It's just not good or bad. However, you look at that. It's, it, it's not, that's just not our reality. And so uh, the reality today is that um, a lot of people are very closed to spiritual thinking, uh, to ideas of faith, to one God type thinking. Uh, a lot of people, or, or the, the opposite in that spectrum is they're extremely open to that idea, to where they're open to any and every idea. 
Uh, you have your truth. I have my truth. And it's all good and it's all the same. And all paths lead to the same place. And, and uh, I'm curious, has anybody ever uh, lived on like the East Coast, specifically kind of Northeast Coast? Any, anybody? Anybody in the room ever lived out there? Just a, just a couple of you, a few of you. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a major difference. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a major difference in the way people approach conversations about faith out on the East Coast than they do out here on the West Coast. And uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you strike up a conversation with somebody on the East Coast about faith, chances are there's a good chance that you're going to get a response, uh, almost kind of deer in the headlights look like, I've, like I've, I've never really thought about faith. Never, I've never really thought about it. And they're a little bit more closed to, to the idea of conversations about it and that sort of thing. And it's just not, it's just not an active part of their thinking, not an active part of their life, by and large. There are, I'm sure there are exceptions to that and that sort of thing. But contrast that with West Coast, man, we're open to everything. Uh, you want to talk? Oh, let's talk about your faith. I'll talk about my faith. And, and man, I can see how that's valuable to you. And I'll use this and I'll draw from here and draw from there and we'll pull it all together. And, and uh, you know, you know, and it's just everybody's very open to conversations about faith, or a lot of people are anyway. Um, it's a very different world that we live in now than from the world that it was. And the problem is, historically speaking, churches are usually the last one to make the necessary changes. And so while we live in this world, us in this room, you know, people of faith, largely, um, we live in this world where we're all about faith and we're all about, you know, we want to share our faith and we want to you know, we want to grow a church and, and see more people, you know, have lives changed by Jesus and that sort of thing. Um, we have a tendency to use kind of tried and true methods in doing that that are really kind of tired and untrue. <laughs> uh, that that w- the methods a lot of churches will use are, you know, well, it worked. Man, I remember 30 years ago we had that program and, man, alive, we were busting at the seams and, and uh, so many people came to faith in Christ, and, and now all those people 30 years ago that came to faith in Christ, their kids have left the church. Their kids are nowhere to be seen. Why? Because we, we made the mistake of being married to a method rather than using whatever method necessary to accomplish our mission. I want us to look at a couple stories in the Bible that I think really illustrate this well. And they're found in the book of Acts, if you want to turn over there. There's, a, there's a Bibles in the rack back at the back, if you'd like to uh, uh, grab one. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2. And it, it's two stories of how the gospel went out in two different cities. In the city of Jerusalem, and then later in the city of Athens. And so we're going to start in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Anybody know what happens in Acts chapter 2? Anybody? Yeah. Pentecost, right? Pentecost. So, so it's this it's this uh, thing that in in Bible you know language we, we refer to as Pentecost. Pentecost was actually a a, a Jewish uh, festival, Jewish celebration, and a lot of people were in town for that celebration. And so, where we are kind of in the timeline of the Bible is Jesus has come. He's had his whole ministry. He was arrested and beaten and and uh, uh, hung on a cross, died, buried, raised to life, uh, raised himself back to life three days later. Over the next several weeks, uh, would kind of pop in and out, appearing to people in that region. And, uh, and then there's this thing that we refer to in Christian circles as the ascension. And this is where Jesus kind of gathers his, his close disciples around him, gives them his, the great commission, says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, um, 
<coughs> and he says, I'm going to be with you always. And then, and, and so right before he ascends and goes to the father and says, you know, I'm coming back again. Uh, he, he has this little bit of, of guidance for him. He says, I actually, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem for just a little while. Stay here in Jerusalem for a little while because I'm going to send a comforter to you. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason this is so instrumental that the Holy Spirit comes to them, they're all gathered together uh, in, in Acts chapter 2. And the reason this is so uh, such a big deal is, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you divide time into kind of before Pentecost and after Pentecost, before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came, um, there was, uh, well, let me start with this. After Pentecost, post-Pentecost, in the era that we live in now, um, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit guides us, uh, comforts us, encourages us, uh, um, um, l- lets us know what God's will is for our life, uh, keeps us on the straight and narrow, that sort of thing. The, the Holy Spirit is there as a constant guide, a constant comforter, a constant encourager, and, 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 and is invaluable in the life of the Christian. Before Pentecost, that was not true. That, that when you read through the Old Testament, the, watch, the picture you get is that Holy Spirit would kind of appear and empower people uh, for limited amounts of time for very specific purposes that God wanted them to accomplish. But there was no constant presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That happens after Pentecost. So Jesus says, remain in Jerusalem for a little while. I'm going to send a comforter to you. And so his disciples are hanging out in this room that is referred to as an upper room. And uh, they're worshiping and they're praying and they're waiting for for this promise from, uh, from God. And suddenly, the Bible describes that as the Holy Spirit uh, uh, came, uh, you know, began to indwell these people, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a mighty rushing wind. And as, as, as the individual believers were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the, the, there's a description of what, what the Bible refers to as little tongues of fire, little bicks, little, little, little fire, or something that resembled that, that would just kind of appear above their head as a symbol that the Holy Spirit was now here. And I, I can't imagine... I mean, it was a group of people about the size of us right here gathered in a room. And, and I can't imagine that, you know, us just looking at each other and suddenly, oh, you got a fire on your head and, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I, that, that's just crazy to me. But, but it, again, it was just this kind of physical symbol that the Holy Spirit was in. So they couldn't, there's no way they could possibly miss that it happened, right? Uh, did you get the Holy Spirit? No, I, you definitely got it. I saw fire on your head, you know, that sort of thing. And, and uh, I mean, the, the, it was there. It was present. It was visible, right? And so... Evidently, as the Holy Spirit comes and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a festival time. And so Jews from all over that area of the world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, as they would do with a lot of different festivals. And so a lot of travelers from different countries and different regions and that sort of thing. And so gathered in this upper room, a group of followers of Jesus Christ about our size of congregation today are gathered in a room and they speak many different languages because they're coming in from all over the world. And this miracle happened in that moment. Not only was there this mighty rushing wind and these little flames of fire and things like that, but they all began to speak in such a way that every person heard each other in their own native tongue. In their own native tongue. So suddenly there was this miracle of hearing that took place where suddenly, I don't speak French, but I totally understand what you're saying. And I don't speak, you know, whatever, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. And it, it provided this, this great moment of unity in the church at that moment. Great moment of unity. Now, celebration broke out when this happened. They are excited. They are so, ex- I mean, they're just so happy that, that they have this Holy Spirit and, and Jesus' promise came true. And they're, they're, they just start celebrating. And evidently, that celebration must, must have leaked out 
of that room into the streets because people all around the area uh, began to get a little suspicious of what was going on. And this is the comments that started to take place in Acts chapter 2. Um, <coughs> it says this, <coughs> verse 12. <coughs> Pardon me. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. In other words, these guys are, you know, stone-cold drunk, okay? So then Peter, Peter, this is Peter who was always sticking his foot in his mouth. Peter who was always, uh, you know, just, just kind of in a moment doing things that, you know, looking back, we're like, well, maybe I should have not have done that. And Peter who, who denies Christ three times. Suddenly Peter, now that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, gets a voice, a powerful voice, and begins to preach a sermon. Verse 14 says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He's like, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, so there's no way we're all drunk, okay? He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on, you can read it on your own. He goes on through this great sermon. He preaches this really great sermon to, to these people there in Jerusalem. And, and he just un, uh, unloads everything that these people, these Jews, have been taught since they were born about different prophets and how those prophecies were fulfilled in the man Jesus Christ, about uh, you know the stories of their forefathers, their spiritual forefathers, and how the, the events that happened in their life and, and the things that happened to them were fulfilled in this man Jesus Christ. He lays it all out, and basically what he's saying, and again, he's preaching to this group of people who had been brought up in faith since birth, who had been taught the scripture had been taught the Old Testament since they were very, very young to the point that the average Jewish adult would grow up having memorized huge tr- chunks of scripture, huge chunks of scripture. And so the scripture was very familiar to them. And he lays this all out from forefathers to prophecies to everything else, all kind of laying out the Old Testament. And then he says this, this Messiah, this promised Messiah that you have been told was coming since you were very young, that you've been taught all about that you have been looking forward to this, 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 this man who would come and set us free again uh, that we have all been waiting for. And they would keep genealogies through hundred, over hundreds of years so they could track and make sure that all the prophecies met, mashed up and everything. This person that we have been anxiously awaiting, he came and his name was Jesus Christ. And guess what? You killed him. You killed him. And then all these people that Peter has that have gathered around to listen to Peter, they hear this, their hearts are cut, they, 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 feel, uh, they feel a drawing in to this gospel message, and they say, well, well, what do we do then? What do we do? And then Peter's response is, repent. Repent. Come, you know, leave behind these old ways of life and Christ has forgiven you. He's paved the way for you to live in a relationship with a holy, righteous God. Repent and begin to follow him. And this is what it says there towards the end of his sermon. He says, um, let me just read verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For, the promises for, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone 
whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now get this part. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thank you, sir. Yeah. 3,000 souls. So day one of the church, the church becomes a mega church. Day one. Day one. And this is the response as the gospel, as, as a sermon is preached to a group of people who grew up and had this firm foundation of Scripture, who were all on the same page, uh, kind of philosophically, who were all on the same page uh, in terms of where you agree upon a certain social contract, a certain set of morals, that sort of thing. This is the response to that. Their hearts are pricked. They realize that they... Uh, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they've been taught all their lives and they respond to it and the church grows by 3,000 on day one. Amazing. Amazing. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, it's not Peter, but it's Paul, the apostle Paul. And he's in the, he's in the, the city of Athens. And as he's looking around the city of Athens, this is a whole different situation. Now, he... Paul's uh, MO for going into different regions and starting churches is basically he would start every region usually had uh, Jews who were living outside of Israel in different areas, different cities and different countries. And they would, uh, they would set up synagogues so they could worship and learn and things like that in those, in those uh, foreign cities and foreign countries. And so he would start with the synagogues at wherever he went. So he's in Athens and he does the same thing. And this is where we pick up this story. I'm going to read a little bit. It's going to take a bit. <coughs> says this, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, Acts chapter 17, verse uh, 16, while Paul's waiting with them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I guess so. I mean, this is where like all, pretty much all Greek mythology comes from. I mean, they had dozens and dozens of gods that they worshiped and statues to them all and temples built to them all and things like that. And so this is where he is. He's right in the belly of the beast when it comes to false gods. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they're, they're, their whole, you know, they hear him. They've got their dozens of gods. They hear him preaching, talking about a God maybe they've never heard of before. But they're curious. They want to hear more. They want to hear more. Um, Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, they're, they're, they're totally open to new teaching and new ideas and things like that. And, 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 and I mean, why not? They had dozens of gods that they worshipped. What was adding one more, right? And so they're just, just totally open to these new ideas. It sounds, sounds like California, right? Like, just, yeah, anything. Let's, let's, let's get it all on the table. Let's talk about it all. And there's value, value in all of it, right? Then he goes on and it says, um, verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. And then he goes on and he begins to tell them about, this, about the God that we worship today, that we, we worship today. He un, un, unpacks for them, and this is to a group of people that don't have the background and the foundation of faith and the, the knowledge of Scripture that the, that the group Peter preached to. These are foreigners. These are people living under a whole different set of morals, a whole different philosophy, a whole different set of, a whole different social contract, the whole thing. They are far from God, no knowledge. And he begins, he starts at creation and he un, unpacks everything he can in his short sermon about God and, and begins to, un, you know, uh, the stories of the Old Testament and the prophecies and all this kind of stuff, and then gets to Jesus and, and tells them about Jesus and how he died and how he was resurrected and this whole, he, he is starting from, from, from zero with these people and building up everything, not assuming that they know anything. Not assuming that they know anything. And then this happens. <coughs> um, let's see here. Uh, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So he, he's approaching a group of skeptics, open but still skeptical. Many of them are like, no, nah, I can't get behind this whole resurrection from the dead thing, kind of turn away. Many of them are intrigued and they're like, you know what? I want to hear more about this. Let's get together again. And a handful, not 3,000, just a handful are like, Okay, I'm going to follow. I'm going to do this. I believe what you say. And it's been enough. And so I want to follow, I want to follow this teaching. Very different situation. And I want to tell you, Athens is where we live now. Athens is where we are currently located now. Where the, 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 our society at large basically does not have that foundation anymore of uh, knowledge of the Bible uh, of, of even agreeing on something as simple as, as many of us might take for granted as something like the Ten Commandments of, uh, you know, whatever. There's no, there's no common uh, ground, common knowledge there. Instead, there's all this diversity of ideas, but openness. And, and yeah, I'll hear you out and that sort of thing. And this is what's going to happen with us moving forward into kind of our Athens uh, today is that very similar to what Paul had happened. There will be some who do have that knowledge that will be, it'll be rekindled in them and they will follow. There will be some who will hear it and they will be skeptical and they will scoff at it. There will be some who are curious and want to hear more. And there'll be a small handful who through relationship and through conversation will say, yeah, I think I can get behind that and I'm ready for that. It's the contrast. I mean, you go back 30 years ago uh, where, where, uh, we lived in this uh, world of Billy Graham crusades. Uh, maybe you remember watching those on TV or maybe you atten- attended one. Maybe you came to faith through a Billy Graham crusade. But he would fill, uh, you know, him, him and his people, Billy Graham and his people would fill coliseums and arenas and, 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 and such and with thousands upon thousands of people and pre- present a very simple message of the gospel that would normally, generally speaking, rekindle in the hearts of people what they had been taught from a young age. They would respond to it and you would see at the end of that hour on TV, thousands of people coming down the aisles of those arenas uh, ready to embrace faith again and, and that sort of thing. 
And fast forward today, we don't see many events like that anymore. Why? Because the, the landscape of our society has changed. It's different now. It's different. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying different. And what we as a church have to do, we can continue to kind of walk in the ways that have been uh, at one time were successful, but we're, we're finding that it's not necessarily successful methods anymore, or we can submit ourselves to God and to his word and say, God, would you inspire uh, new methods in us? We, you know, our, our, the leadership of this church, we operate under this, we operate under this assumption that there are ways of doing church out there that nobody has thought of yet. There are ways of doing church out there that nobody has thought of yet, and, and we want to we try new things. We wanna, why? Because, we, because of this. It's one of our core values. Put this up there. Uh, this. We'll do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. We're going to do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. Why? Because we have a heart for people who don't know Christ. Let me ask this question. A quick survey. Uh, raise your hand if you came to faith, maybe for the very first time, came to faith through Living Hope Church. Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, maybe five. Okay, just a small handful. Small handful of you. Uh, same survey, same response, previous service. Okay. Now, the reason I, I ask that question is this: is that we are a church. Uh, I think more so than a lot of churches, we are a church who definitely has a heart to reach people who are far from God. I mean, we 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 are very intentional about reaching people who are far from God, and yet what we see. Uh, not only in this churches, but churches all across this country, is that, as, and we're a growing church. We're in the minority. We're a growing church. Most churches are on the decline, and God, you know, praise God, we're a growing church. But here's the thing, is that most churches that are experiencing growth are either experiencing growth because of people who, who were once people of faith who went, grew far from God and are coming, returning to their faith, or it's from kind of transfer growth from other churches. I moved, and so I'm looking for a different church, or, you know, I got uh, disgruntled at that church, so I'm looking for a different church, or, you know, whatever. And, and, and we're seeing very little actual conversion growth, new growth, new believer growth. And we see more of it than a lot of churches do. We see more than a lot of churches, and yet the number is still very, very small. Very small. Why? Because the landscape has changed and by and large, large, our methods have not. Rob and I have had this conversation before where, you know, you, and we don't do a lot of this because we believe that we're all part of the same team in terms of churches in this city and that sort of thing. Uh, but, but if you were to compare our church to, say, other churches in this town, uh, you're going to find that our church tends to be kind of have a very contemporary style or whatever, a very casual style. You'll go to a different church in town, and, uh, and maybe they're a more liturgical style, more traditional style. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be, I'm not, not, not good, not bad, just, just fact. Okay. Just the way it is. Um, but when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it, we're all pretty much doing the same thing. We come together, we sing a few songs, we take up an offering. There's a few announcements. There's some prayer. There's a sermon. We shake hands. We go home. It's pretty much the same thing. No matter how it feels, what it looks like, it's all pretty much the same thing. And yet there's this idea driving us forward that, that we believe there are ways of doing church out there that nobody has thought of yet. And if God would inspire upon us new methods, then we would, then we would use them. Then we would use it, and we need to use them. Married to our mission, dating our methods, dating our methods. The second part of that statement that we say is this: to reach people no one is reaching. We, we've got to do things that nobody is doing. 
we're going to reach people that nobody is reaching, then reaching, we have to try things that nobody else is trying. And we'll do anything short of sin to reach them. And so this is part of our, you know, in terms of leadership of this church, is part of our conversation on a pretty regular basis is, is, you know, kind of evaluating what we're doing. Is it working? What are the results? I want to call Matt up here for a second. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. All right. So um, Matt is our youth pastor and does a great job. And um, uh, this has been part of our conversation between him and I uh, for, for quite a while now, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but the landscape of youth ministry has drastically changed, drastically changed. It, you know, 30 years ago, up until, say, 10 years ago, um, pretty much all youth ministry looked about the same. A church would hire a youth pastor, uh, you know, and they would get, you know, teenage kids in a room and play games, dodgeball or chubby bunny. Chubby bunny uh, we don't do that. You know, shoving, you know, basically we try to suffocate your kids with marshmallows, that sort of thing. And so play some silly game or whatever, have, you know, get loud and raucous and, and that sort of thing. And then come together maybe for a little bit of worship and then a, a, a big, you know, a, a, some sort of message that's kind of geared directly to teens and, uh, and their uh, lives and that sort of thing. So uh, that has worked, that had worked for about, you know, 20 or 30 years until about 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago. And then there was this shift that ha- has happened in the, in the, in our, in our society amongst our youth used to, uh, you could, you could pretty much bank on by the time a teenager got to college, they would then start to go through a period of skepticism or doubt or whatever process it took to kind of own their faith or reject it, whatever that looked like. And, and all that would kind of happen in the college years. And what we have seen is that's not, that's no longer true. It's now happening in the high school years and more and more high school youth are becoming doubters and skeptics and asking really difficult, hard questions and things like that. Uh, they're not just taking it f- uh, for granted that these teachings and, and many and, and high school ministries are shrinking drastically. All it's not just a living hope issue. It's a church wide issue. Um, and so we're looking at this and we're, we're, say, we're basically asking, you know, we either keep doing the same thing that's obviously not working or we've got to reevaluate, reevaluate this thing and start trying some different things. And, um, and so I'm going to let Matt talk about that for just a second because, it, again, it's, it's kind of his area. And, and just to kind of cue you in topically on the kind of conversations that take place in our church around this issue. Go ahead. I'll, I'll try and filter myself and be brief, yeah, which we all know is impossible, but God does the impossible. Uh, I, I think what's so cool about what we're talking about this morning is something that really has been laid on uh, my heart and the other uh, youth leaders' hearts. And this is not a sermon that Jeff and I sat down and fabricated to try and give me an attaboy, you know, to launch a new idea. This is something that God has been instilling in our hearts as individuals, but also as a team. I want to read real quick a, a quote by Lecrae. He's a Christian rapper and uh, one of the most uh, emerged Christians out there. He actually gets a lot of backlash, uh, a lot of kind of hate from the Christian community because he is so in there hanging out with dudes like Lil Wayne and Jay-Z and people who, I mean, you wouldn't want your kids listening to that. And if your kids listen to that, get it off their iPods and stuff. <laughs> Seriously. But this, this is the guy who's trying to reach him. And this is, this is his uh, one sentence on how we engage culture as a church. We tend to have these bi- that see the world as half spiritual and half sacred. 
How do you engage culture if the Bible is just for church? Basically saying that the ride to church is sacred and the time in church is sacred and about 15 minutes after you leave church is sacred and then by about 2 p.m. on Tuesday, what you would watch on Tuesday night is not what you'd want to watch up here because if we were watching it in church, it'd make you feel uncomfortable. And we tend to have this sort of view that there are certain areas that when you walk into based on the crowd, that's not sacred time because you know they're cussing and they're, and they're doing this and they're talking about that and they're dressing a certain way. Whereas right now, and, and for the next about you know, 15 minutes or so, this is going to be sacred. And, and that view needs to change. Not that we need to view this as unsacred, but that we need to view all of our time as sacred. And the time that we're spending with that person that you really don't want your kids hanging out with, that's sacred time, just as much as this is sacred time. And so what we've decided to do is uh, we partner with a, a ministry here in town where we partner with four or five different churches um, a couple of them, Calvary Chapel, Grace Fellowship in town. And we put on a, a, a unified youth group on Tuesday nights. And it's, it's something that already, right there, is something that's completely different. It's, I really don't know of any other you know, churches that are doing this every single week. And, and so what we've decided to do is take on the fact that when we look at it, we see about 85 to 95, 85% to 90% of high schoolers are not either engaged, plugged in, or reached. And how we define that is not are they attending youth group, but are they engaged in Christ? And, and that 85, 90% is, is I mean, that, that's a very generous, you know, at, at that number. And so what we've decided to do is, is where we have Thursday night youth group, we've decided to have interstate, which is that, that unified youth group, basically absorb that youth group model where we throw a bunch of marshmallows and balls at your children and then tell them about Jesus. Oh, we do a lot more than that. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, we, we, we have that be absorbed into Tuesday and Thursday night be completely focused on reaching those kids who are not reached. Because the fact is, is that if you are coming to church, you as an adult with, with a daughter or a son, and your child is engaged in a youth group, the likelihood of them staying in a youth group type model is a lot more likely than a kid who does not have parents going to church. And when you look at it, the 85 to 90%, it's not just the high schoolers. That's just about everyone. And so what we decided is that Thursday night is that we're going to have a meal. We're going to have a conversation. We're going to have people come together. And what's really cool about this is that we've decided that we want to have high school be the leaders. They're not just in there to invite friends. They're on mission. I mean, they're missionaries in their schools by having their friends Come, hang out, have a discussion. And I think the coolest thing is that I don't have to worry about making sure every conversation is doctrinally correct. That's exhausting. We want kids to come and, and, and be able to be skeptics, be able to question, be able to ask me and ask the other youth leaders and have other youth students attempt to answer questions. And, and the cool thing is I don't have to answer every single question. We can leave them open-ended. Because people want to be, or these youth kids, they, they want to be able to feel comfortable walking into a place, not be corrected with the Bible every single moment. So it is really uh, kind of uh, something that we're attempting in terms of like intentional ministry to doubters and skeptics. And, and, uh, and, and, and I think that also builds up the youth within our own family here, because if you're a parent of teens, you know, uh, they're going through their own doubts and questions and, and, and ha- you know, are looking for hard answers and things like that. And so it, it helps build them up and, and, and equip them with, uh, answers and also helps answer the kids that uh, answer the questions of the kids that are out there searching and, and and confused and that sort of thing. And so, anyway, would you just kind of partner with us and pray as we kind of try to tread on some new ground and try some new things in order to reach people that are far from God? 
And, uh, and this is just one area of our church life. I just thought it was a great example. But we want kind of this mentality in most areas of our church life where we're looking at, you know, again, a church that is passionate about reaching people that are far from God and meeting them on their, their playing ground. And, and, and instead of, like Matt said, just trying to correct everything they say, engaging them in relationship, in conversation, uh, respecting opinions. We don't, we don't uh, attribute the title of truth to every opinion, but we will at least ex- respect their point of view and hear them out and engage them in, a, in an intelligent conversation and that sort of thing. We want to be a church that is, is, uh, is passionate enough about reaching this community that, you know, that we, 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 we try new things. We try new forms of conversation and that sort of thing. Again, there's nothing sacrilegious about this. There's nothing like we're going to water down. It's not about watering down. It's about actually, I think actually, by making the answer to every question Jesus, we've actually been watering it down over the years. When you actually engage people in the hard questions and try to come to hard answers and that sort of thing, that is actually getting intently into the path to truth. And so uh, that this is where we want to meet people. So pray for, pray for Matt and his leaders as, as they... Uh, you know, really attempt to reach this this generation specifically of high schoolers that uh, that 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 tends to kind of wander away and question and that sort of thing, and then pray for us as a church too that we all become as we've been talking about over the past few weeks the kind of neighbors who engage our neighborhoods and our workplaces and and our little league groups and things like that in a way that uh, that respects people where they are and, and draws them in to, so that we can share this hope that's within us. That's what we want to do, right? Isn't that what we want to do? So let's, let's, let's continue to work at this and do a better job. Let's, let's transition. You know, for, for those people who come to us on that ground of Jerusalem where they've got that background and they've got that foundation and they're ready to receive, praise God for them. But let's also do some transition from Jerusalem to Athens and really meet people into the hard questions and, and, uh, and really engage them in, in some intelligent ways. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I thank you so much for your word today, and I, and I just thank you that uh, you're still in the business of changing lives. And, um, and so, God, as you use us in that process, uh, we submit ourselves to you. And, um, and, God, we know we don't have all the answers, and we know that there are, are big life questions out there that, that sometimes are almost impossible to answer. But God, would you just guide our conversations? Would you give us wisdom that is beyond ourselves? Um, Would you grow the heart that we have for people in this region that are far from God? And um, God, would you um, orchestrate relationships and conversations, intentionally put us in the lives of people who are seeking you? even if they don't realize that they're seeking you. Um, Again, we just love you, and uh, we thank you so much. Um, God, for for those of us in the room, maybe that are far from God right now, kind of questioning whether you want to get involved in the whole faith thing, or or maybe you're sitting in the seat of a skeptic right now. I got to pray that your Holy Spirit would just reach out to them in this moment, that your presence would be felt, uh, that voice would be heard and you would begin to draw them into the relationship with you. And uh, God, I pray that we can be the church for them that they need uh, in order to uh, help them draw closer to you as well. We love you. We thank you for the way that you use us, for the way that you reach out to us and save us out of our low places. Uh, we thank you. You're a good God and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.